Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast, where we talk about all the different ways that parenting, pregnancy, prenatal care, maternal health care, feminism, politics, and all of it come together. Um, Oh, we're going to have a really good conversation today. I can just tell. I was... um, scrolling through headlines a while back, I think it was last month, maybe it was in January or February, but I saw this study about how um, maternal health statistics and outcomes are a little bit worse on nights and weekends. And I thought, hmm, we're going to have to talk about that. So um, we're going to get the lead researcher on that study, Dr. Brett Einerson, on the phone in just a bit so that we can um, talk all that through. And, you know, that kind of got me reminiscing about all those years that I worked as a labor and delivery nurse, uh, the bulk of them on night shift and certainly every other weekend because that's just the way the job goes. And, uh, you know, I really... I have both really positive and really um, not negative memories, but it was hard. Working night shift was really, really hard. It was also kind of cozy and really fun. And there was this like survivor's camaraderie among all of us that were staying up all night together. And, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a big sense of family in many ways. And uh, I like thinking back on that. I like thinking about back on the nurses that I spent years and years with, where I spent more hours with them at night than I did with my own husband. And, uh, you know, it was a good thing. It was a good, good time. But I also remember, oh, so many days and nights where I was exhausted because you know, it's a hard job. It's not just staying up all night, but it's a big responsibility to be a labor and delivery nurse or a midwife or an obstetrician. And it's um, both physically demanding and emotionally demanding, and you have to be at the top of your game. So that the work itself is tiring, let alone the hours. Um, But then, you know, most of us that are healthcare providers are also just regular old folks and we have children and aging parents and friends and social responsibilities and partners and, you know, dogs that have to be walked. And we're regular folks. And it's, we bring all of that to the job too. It's part of who we are. And I think that oftentimes we like to put the people in our lives in little brackets, like she is the doctor, therefore she fulfills this role. Uh, she is the nurse, therefore she fulfills this role, and that's who she is. Uh, I am the patient. You know, we we do that. We make it easy for ourselves to understand our relationships by putting them in little brackets. But the truth is, is that no human being lives within those brackets. And yes. She might be the doctor, but she's also a mom and she's also worried about her dad. And she's, uh, you know, trying to figure out how she can get a prescription for herself. You know, we're humans. It's what happens. Every single shift that I went into the hospital, yes, I was there for my patients and my coworkers. And I was aware that, you know, I had a baby who had a little fever at home. That was there too. And frankly, I think that that brings value 
to the our relationship with our patients. It means that we're all in this together. We're all going to be who we are, and we're all going to do the best we can for each other. So on that note, um, I want to have a good long conversation with Dr. Einerson. So let's go ahead and just get him on the phone. Hello. Hi, this is Dr. Einerson. Yeah. Hi, this is Jeannie. Thank you for coming on the on the phone on the podcast with us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. So can we be on a first name basis? Please, that's how I prefer it. Oh good, me too. I uh stumble over the last names a little bit sometimes and it's I think it's important for everybody to know that you know what, docs are just people with first names too. It's cool. (laughs) I totally agree in every way. Yeah. Yeah, I scold yeah. my uh, colleagues when they call me doctor. Makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's a little bit of a hierarchy implied there, you know. And since so much of what we, you know, work towards is to kind of even the playing field, I think being on a first name basis is important. Yeah. I agree totally. So, yeah. Well, you know what I want to do is I want to go ahead and read your very official and impressive bio. And then let's start talking. Perfect. Cool? Mm -hmm. Okay. Brett Einerson is a clinical fellow in maternal fetal medicine at University of Utah Health Center. He is the beaming father of two young children and husband to a full-time adoption therapist and part-time child welfare activist. A native Minnesotan, he grew up in the rural lake country, reminiscent of Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon. After college in St. Paul, He ventured with his new spouse to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, for medical school at Wake Forest University. Before leaving the South, he studied healthcare policy, epidemiology, and college basketball for a year at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He then lived and worked in Chicago for four years, completing obstetrics and gynecology residency at Northwestern University and Cook County Medical Center. Since 2015, he has lived in Salt Lake City, and he intends to stay for a while. He is a health systems researcher, a high-risk obstetrician, and a curious skeptic. His research engages the fields of maternal and fetal health, patient safety, and quality improvement, and economics. If ever in Salt Lake City, call him up for a tour of the best coffee shops and breweries in town. Woo! (laughs) That's no small feat to give brewery tours in Salt Lake City. I thought it was a fairly dry town. That's changing? It's changing, absolutely. Huh. We have huh. a good a good microbrew scene here and very uh, engaged public in the mm-hmm. discourse of what uh, what's appropriate for alcohol and what's not. <laughs> yeah, things are changing. Yeah, I have family who live in Park City, which I've heard described as really just an entirely different part of Utah. No commonalities. And partly, I think, because of the, you know, that, the difference in culture. Yeah, very true. Yeah, yeah. So now that I've read your bio, who are you and what do you do? Well, I I guess uh, the simplest answer is that I'm a doctor, but I I think if you ask my patients who I am, they'll probably say that I'm, a nice guy who tries to provide pretty good care to them and takes pretty good care of them. Um, I think my colleagues, like my other other high-risk docs who I work with, would probably describe me as somebody who's a hard worker, a researcher, 
Um, friends probably would tell you that I'm a political progressive um, who gets a little bit annoying sometimes, but likes to mm -hmm. start conversations. Mm-hmm, me too. And, well, good. And my yeah. wife would probably tell you and has described me as just a normal guy who leaves the seat toilet seat up in the middle of the night. <laughs> you know what? I may be the only woman in the world who feels like that's totally fine. <laughs> we're yeah, quite capable. Yeah, we're quite capable, we women, of glancing at the toilet before we sit down, mostly. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you've you've given me a pretty good description. What do you do when you're not doctoring besides going to breweries and coffee shops? If you're in, in if you're in Utah, you are you active? Are you a sport guy? Yeah, you sort of have to be in Utah if you're not from here. The reason most people come in to live here is cuz the mountains, the rock climbing, the skiing. And I do yeah. that. I'm more of a hiker <laughs> camper and part, you know, sort of a hack skier. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I really enjoy the outdoors and find a lot of just beauty and truth in the mountains. Um, so it, enjoy, I certainly enjoy the activity, but really enjoy the scenery just as much. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that. If you move to Utah as, you know, somebody who doesn't exercise, you'll get into it quickly because it's just what you do there. Yeah, there's peer pressure. Like, I mean, this is really the first place that I've been where um, the doctors are health nuts, which, mm -hmm. like, that should be true everywhere, right? We're telling right. our patients to lose weight and exercise. But the truth is we're pretty big hypocrites when it comes to that. But I have a ton of peer pressure in my Division department for people who are constantly working out, and sometimes I feel like a slacker. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. I think, though, you know, doctors are just people raising their families and going to work, and I think that the hardest part about being an active person is time management. You know, it's not really a, you know, I know that everybody knows, whether you're a doctor or, you know, anybody you know you're supposed to do the thing. You're supposed to eat right and you're supposed to exercise. But we get so busy. It's so hard. Yeah. Yeah, I've got to Maybe schedule it's... it in or else it doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. And that's the way it is for absolutely everybody. Unless you are a paid athlete and it's scheduled for you. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So you've been around the country a bit. Minnesota, North Carolina, Chicago, and now Utah. And, um, you know, you've you've been kind of immersed in the hospital world of maternal health care in some really, really different environments. And so I'm curious what you saw in these different parts of the United States that really impressed you. Uh, sure. That, so I think that part of my training has allowed me to see what hospitals are like in real, really well-resourced and not really well-resourced parts of one city. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen uh, what it looks like to provide care to rural areas and had a lot of opportunity to interact with people who provide care in hospitals that are not as well equipped as most of the places I've trained. And let me just say, I mean, I have an unbelievable amount of respect for people who practice obstetrics in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. 
and I have a huge amount of respect for completely different reasons for people who practice obstetrics in the urban, low-resource, really difficult settings. And seeing, seeing people work in those areas um, has just really inspired me because they, everybody sort of has to adjust their environment. And yeah. you, what I'm most Im- impressed by and sort of startled by is what a different su- tool set you have to have in those different areas because your patients are so different. Your patients' communities are so different. Um, and the amount of resources that you have are so different. So we as doctors get trained to provide a high level of care in a tertiary care medical center, most of us, with everything that we could possibly need. And then right. when I <laughs> right. I talk to people who work in these, and I've worked in, in places where you don't have everything that you need, you have to be so adaptable, and I'm so impressed. Yeah. Both, both of the settings that you're talking about, middle of nowhere and, you know, dense urban populations are operating with limited resources. Exactly. And in the middle of nowhere, you're also, you know, there, you might be the only obstetrician for a thousand miles in a circle. You might have some family practice doctors who are your partners. There might be some nurse midwives who are hanging out there too, probably not, but your patients might have to drive two to four hours just to get there. So you're dealing with, and, you know, not to mention anesthetists. Yeah, there's going to be one. But, you know, you're dealing with an entirely different population issues, challenges. But I think that you have to kind of figure out your practice in a bare bones way. You don't have all the bells and whistles, so you don't use all the bells and whistles. And you probably do a darn good job, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you figure out who you what your uh, we all do this you you know your limits and you find the resources to help you when you reach those limits and yeah one of my gr- growing up in small town minnesota i sort of always imagined myself as being this self-sufficient primary care doctor or maybe general surgeon out in the middle of nowhere who could do any- anything and mm-hmm. and uh in a sense i think that the the docs and midwives and nurses who work in these smaller areas in a lot of ways, they are better equipped to kind of do everything. But it, but one of my passions in you know exploring the world of telehealth here in Utah, um, and just interacting with quality improvement initiatives throughout the state is to is try to get people the resources that they need to take care of uh, take care of more complex patients. Yeah, yeah. So you know, just to kind of cover the spectrum, you also mentioned. You know, the dense inner city populations where we're seeing um, an entirely different population of people kind of on a spectrum. You see the people who are truly, honest to God, high-risk patients for whatever reason. And then you're also seeing people who have, you know, all of the health and financial and insurance benefits that you could want. Mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of spread yourself across that range to be able to customize your care. Absolutely. Yeah. It's challenging. Very challenging. It's challenging. Yeah. yeah. I haven't done any um I haven't done any labor and delivery nursing in the middle of nowhere. Um 
I always worked in dense inner city populations, but as somebody who <clears throat> writes and speaks and travels and reports about global maternal health, I see, I've seen, you know, in person birth settings that are extremely primitive in Peru, in Haiti, in, you know, third world countries, developing countries. And that makes our low resource settings look like palaces, you know, (laughs) like palaces. And so it's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. I I have written many, many times about, um, you know, the only clinic within a thousand miles or or so that has no electricity in certain populations in certain villages. And so there's one midwife who works there. That's it. That's all they have. The one, twenty four seven. And um, his or her job, oftentimes it's it's a man. Uh, is to take care of everything all the time, everywhere. And if you can't stitch up the the cut and deliver the baby and all of that, well, then you have to turf them off to wherever the regional facility is. And they have almost nothing, and still they do their thing. You know, it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it takes a different... Um it takes you got a MacGyver. Kind of I I will admit to anybody that my efficiency and effectiveness at being a doctor is completely and utterly dependent on tertiary care medicine. Like I I feel so lucky to be able to call up world-renowned cardiologists and ask them what do I do about my patient who's got pulmonary stenosis and now she's pregnant, and yeah. and I take for I mean that's a phone call away for me. Uh, right, in, that's part of your toolkit. Exactly. In rural Nevada, that's not. And in Ghana, that's not. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah. I'm, I've got so much respect um, for people who are doing the work that our country and our world needs in areas that don't have access to tertiary care. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in other in different parts of the United States, we're seeing some incredibly different maternal health outcomes. Um, And I think that people really don't understand this, Mm -hmm. that certain populations, certain parts of the country, it really, and certain hospitals, certain providers, you know, your outcome, not just, you know, walking away from your birth feeling well, but walking away from your birth without any debilitating injuries or walking away from your birth at all, can be dependent on that. Yes. If you're Afri- African-American woman, your risks for a bad outcome are multiplied by four, five, six, seven times. It's, it's astounding, and I don't think people understand that. Yeah, I think it speaks in part to um, the fact that there are differences in hospitals, and I think it speaks also in part to the fact that we all come to the hospital with a different, as patients, with, mm-hmm. and I say we because I've been there, not yeah. as a woman in labor, but as a patient myself and as a family member of people who've had some pretty bad illnesses. And, you know, you, you come to somebody from the south side of Chicago um, who maybe hasn't been able to make it to her prenatal visits because the bus line is inefficient um, and has a bunch of health problems that she didn't know about, um, comes to 
the hospital um, at a completely different place um, than a person who has been to every single one of her prenatal visits and can easily afford the most expensive anti-nausea medicines and prenatal vitamins and whatever hospital that she wants to deliver at, she can deliver at. So those people come mm. to the hospital with very disparate yeah, situations absolutely. at baseline. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your study on the night and weekend effect in obstetrics. Um, tell me a little bit about it, how you decided to create this study and, and what you found from it. Sure. So, I mean, the night and weekend effect, just to sort of lay it out there as a, what it is, what it is, um, is this phenomenon that we've seen, we as a field, the general medical field, have seen played out in a number of different fields. And the reality, or the, the phenomenon is increased morbidity or bad outcomes and death in patients at night and on the weekends in hospitals compared to during the weekday. And, you know, we've, there's been some prominent examples for years in internal medicine and emergency medicine and cardiology. And the f- whether or not this weekend effect exists in obstetrics, which is my field of choice, of course, mm-hmm. is, um, is a little bit hazier. And we like to think, I, I think, in obstetrics that we're a little bit more of a 24-hour service than some fields of medicine. Not that we're better, um, but that we have intentionally designed our systems and our brains and our working patterns and to provide really good care at any time because we know that labor is unpredictable and a baby who's going to get sick or a mom who's going to get sick or a mom who's going to go into labor can happen at 2 a.m. just as likely as at 2 p.m. Right. So yeah. I think we believe or want to believe that we're say we're we the night and weekend effect is going to be lessened in obstetrics because of how we're designed and how we think about patient care maybe compared to some other fields um so a few uh authors have sort of looked at this and started to ask whether or not a night and weekend effect exists in obstetrics and the general consensus of a couple of studies that were previously published and then our study and then um, a few other studies that are sort of in the works is that there appears to be a small but persistent effect in the night and weekend effect. That there is some correlation or association between delivering at night and having either a maternal complication or a baby complication. The, the data to me, looking at other studies and looking at ours, is more convincing in babies than it is in moms, but it looks like it, it exists in both. The, our study specifically looked at a group of patients in 19 hospitals all over the country, and some of them were academic university hospitals, and some of them were community hospitals. Um, and spanning from the time of 2002 until 2008, was looking at 208,000 women with 228,000 deliveries all in the United States. And what we wanted to compare was the outcomes of patients who delivered between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., that being the daytime, during the week, mm-hmm. versus patients who delivered after 7 p.m. on the weekdays or on the weeknights or on the weekend at all. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that a 
composite morbidity or a group of outcomes that are related to maternal bad outcomes was about the same whether you delivered in the daytime or on the night and weekend. Um, but that there was a difference in whether or not your baby had a complication. And the complications for babies were death, birth trauma, whether or not it needed to be on a ventilator, whether it got a bloodstream infection or a bad lung infection, whether it had a bleed in its brain or had seizures. And so all bad outcomes. All bad outcomes, right? So that's scary for a patient, right? I don't want to mm-hmm. deliver up at night. And so I'm going to or at least that would be my reaction as a patient. Right. So we we wanted to ask specifically, is there something about the way that we've designed our system to set it up for failure at night? No. Jeannie, I think the like the stock answer, and you've worked in healthcare, and you've worked on labor and delivery. I think the, the yeah, the stock, ten years on night shift. Yeah, the, <laughs> I think that, and as a night shift person, you don't want this to be true, do you? <laughs> no, but I know a lot of reasons why it is true. Right, I've well, got a lot of opinions about. Well, what this. do you I think? Totally I, I want to hear your before I get into the what how we tried to address this. I want to hear you, why you think. Well, I think that the culture of the culture is different on night shift. First of all, if you're working night shift, it's either because you're fairly new to the hospital or you are fairly new as a nurse. Um, There are some people who are just natural night shifters, but primarily your staff, your your nursing staff, at least, who is doing, you know, the bulk of the patient care at night is younger, maybe has less seniority. So maybe there's a little bit uh, less experience to know when to call in for an emergency Uh or the opposite. You're um, jumpy. And so you call in your provider for an emergency too quickly, which then starts the domino effect of interventions. Yeah. The, the other thing is that not in all facilities, certainly not in, you know, big academic facilities, but in, you know, general community hospitals, you don't have scheduled procedures going on at night generally. Right. You have... Your spontaneous labors and people who are leftover labors from the day shift, and then you have a lot of postpartum care. So you don't necessarily have all your doctors on the floor. And if something happens, you have to get your doctor in. They may be coming in, and and I think the general rule everywhere is probably you can't be more than 20 minutes away, but that um, that can contribute to a delay in care. Or... You've got a doctor who's been up all day. He's got an office full of patients. The next day, he's exhausted. You know, his wife's pissed at him. Whatever is going on in his life, and he's looking at a strip saying, okay, that's it. We're just doing a section. We're done. We're done here. And then you have this cavalcade of interventions. And, you know, sometimes we just have to face the human reality that we are tired at night and maybe – we look the other way or we miss something. Now, I don't think that that happens very often because I think that the statistics that you're relating in, to in, your, in the study are so small. And I, we just have to emphasize that. Seriously, this is small. But it happens. We're tired. I know that when I was working, I did 10 years on 7 to 7, 7P to 7A. And... Um, what I would do is I would, you know, say I would start my, my first shift would be on a, say, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday that week. 
And so I would be up all day Tuesday. I'd work all night Tuesday night. I'd come home, get my kids off to their situation, sleep six hours, get up, do my evening with kids, go to work, do it again. And that's how you roll. You get tired. And it's the same for doctors. And I I remember one doctor and... If he's listening, I'm not going to mention his name because I just have so much respect for this guy. I just think he's awesome. But it was a long time ago, maybe 20 years ago, and he was new. And he had a new baby, and he could not wake up on a phone call. And so you'd call him, and you'd say, you know, come on, I need you to come in. I've got a patient in labor, whatever. I need you to be here. And okay, okay, I'm on my way. And then you knew, call back in five minutes because he fell back asleep. And there was one situation one night where it was a desperate situation and I needed him now. And I made the call and he didn't come in. And I made another call and he didn't come in. And so I was told by my, I was man, I was the night shift manager. I was told by my coworkers that on my third call, I used a lot of expletives and said, you get your feet on the floor right now, buddy. You be here in five minutes or I am calling your wife's cell phone. (laughs) That's great. That is it worked. That is the nursing staff attitude that we need. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he was young enough and humble enough that he got it. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. I think that you are getting at what all of us in the medical field regret to admit, but all know um, that it feels less organized, maybe less safe, maybe. Um, well, we don't have all of the safety nets there. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an, you know, there's an interesting piece, um, a perspective piece that I read from a doc who had a family member who was sick, and it was his um, admission, I guess, of how much, how more, much more startling it was being a family member and seeing the weekend effect go into, um, go into action. So he 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 describes his family member being admitted to the hospital with a bunch of different problems. His parent who had been dealing with a lot of health issues and came into the hospital on a Thursday afternoon and there was this mad rush to get everything done Friday. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that mad rushes are not good for patient safety. No, they're <laughs> so first not. Of all, so first of all, you've got that mad rush going on. And why does that mad rush go on? Because on some services, and maybe less so in obstetrics than elsewhere, but I would argue at the field of obstetrics also has these problems. You don't have every single service at your disposal and every single ability to get, and especially in smaller hospitals, you do not have those, the same help on the weekend or at night. And so right. we know, we all as healthcare providers know in our hearts, it feels a little bit less optimized. Health systems just feel less optimized at night to deliver the care. And that's in, this is coming from me, a guy who has worked mostly in university-based or at least large hospitals. I can't imagine, although I've talked to people, I can't imagine what it feels like to be one of the two labor and delivery nurses in a hospital that's got two labor rooms and mm-hmm. a doctor lives 30 minutes away and it's right. Saturday night and somebody comes in with a cl- an eclamptic seizure. I, I cannot you got to be good at it. Oh, I, I never worked in a, well, actually, early, early on, I did work in some two nurse facilities, but not for long. I 
you work as a team. You know, yeah. generally there are more people there. But if I was in the middle of nowhere in that facility we talked about early on, yeah, that's a scary thing. Yeah. Anyway, so I think you mentioned earlier, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the numbers and some of the things that we tried to ask in the study. So, I mean, that when you just look at all comers, the rate of a mom dying is extraordinarily low, less than one in a thousand. Right. Um, the rate, the risk of a baby not making it either during the delivery process or more commonly after the delivery process is about, you know, anywhere from a half a percentage to to one percent, and that mm-hmm. that's including a lot of things. I mean, babies who we knew were going to be sick and not do well before they came in, but there are a certain proportion of those babies who come in and don't do well despite us you know having no inclination that they're that they're going to not do well but the numbers that we found is that if you just look at everybody who came in the risk of a baby having a bad outcome that we mentioned before was 6.9 percent at night or on the weekend and 5.8 percent um during the day and again the majority of those are made up of situations where we sort of have an idea that it's likely that the baby could have a complication based on severe prematurity or mom's got a really bad health condition and needs to be mm-hmm. delivered too early. Mm-hmm. But there's a difference there, right? And especially a there's, a, there's a difference that we want to think about because in general, we as high-risk OBs want our sicker patients with sicker babies to deliver during the day. Mm-hmm. And so some of us will say, well, the deck should be stacked for more bad outcomes during the week, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit interesting to find the opposite. Now, we asked, is there something about the way that we schedule labor and delivery? Because not everybody comes in spontaneous labor, you know. <laughs> right, 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 right. Oh, yeah, I've heard. <laughs> um, what do we call that? Yeah. Mm, little thing called induction. Yes, yeah, so unfortunately, sometimes the uncomplicated spontaneous labor seems like the exception and not the rule anymore. But we're trying to we're trying to get back to more natural spontaneous labor. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. yeah. That was the fun part of night shift, though, was that if if a patient walked in, it was pretty likely it was spontaneous. Exactly, labor. exactly. Yeah. So we is there something about the way that we schedule our days that sets it up so that people are going to be delivering at night when we as healthcare providers maybe think that we're not quite as prepared to deliver or to do things as safely as we might be able to do during the day. And so we looked at a group of just spontaneously laboring. So we wanted to, we wanted to first say, does the night and weekend effect exist in obstetrics? And in our study, it looks like it does for babies, but not moms. Mm-hmm. And then, what is contributing to it? Why is this happening? So, our question of whether our scheduling practices, and what I mean by that is, you know, if I'm a doctor who's got a patient who's pretty low risk but wants to be induced. When we get to 39 weeks, maybe she's had a few babies before, and induction should not lead to a C-section. Somebody's had a bunch of babies before. I'm not going to schedule it for Saturday morning, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to schedule it for Sunday night so that when I have a little bit of time between patients or if I have the morning off on or the afternoon off on Monday morning from seeing other patients in my clinic, I want them to deliver in that time when I'm free and awake and happy. Yeah. And so we build into 
our obstetric units, whether we are the busiest hospital in the country or the smallest hospital in the country, we build in differences in how patient, when patients are going to deliver, unless they come in spontaneously laboring. So we wanted to look at, is that accounting for that? So the easiest way to look for, at that would be to just, is what we did, is looking at just people, just women who come in spontaneously laboring, because that, that group of patients should not be subject to the same scheduling biases. They just come in whenever they want, or whenever they, whenever mm-hmm. they go into mm-hmm. labor. Mm-hmm. And in that group, we did not see any differences in either mom or baby outcomes that were bad. So about the same number of bad outcomes as in the entire group, but the risk was not any higher at night than it was during the day. For the spontaneous labor For the spontaneously laboring patients. So to me, and I don't know how you interpret that, I'm interested to hear, but the way that I interpret that is when we take out the bias of the doctor's schedule or the health system's preference for delivery during the day, we don't see the night and weekend effect. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe well, maybe a little bit reassuring. I do have some opinions about that. <laughs> I have opinions about all of this stuff. I, I think that there's an awful lot of things that are not necessarily um, measurable oh, or yeah. studyable. Or I think that there is... I, I think that when a patient comes in at spontaneous level er, labor, her body is maximized for both her and the baby to do the job it needs to do. And we don't know all the magic that goes on there. We, we call it, you know, oxytocin, and we call it all of these chemical and medical and technical terms, and we chart it on a graph, and we say, see, that's the thing that made this turn out. But the truth is, is that it happens it's a natural process that we don't know everything about. And I think there's something about the night. I think that, you know, we see patients all over the hospital, just not, not just in the NICU and labor and delivery. Night's tough. Mm-hmm. Night is tough. There's something about it. And I don't know if we can put it on a graph. Yeah. But, you know, just like we know that full moon Friday night, the shit's going to hit the fan in the emergency room and on labor and delivery, we know it, right? Yep. You know it. Yeah. We used to call it like the, you know, in residency, we'd call it the S-ROM bus because we, we would, we swear, and, you know, we don't, we didn't, we never did a study on this, but we swear that it was like weather patterns or maybe like yeah. psychosocial unrest in the city of Chicago or something yes. that led to just everybody. It was like we would have very few people on labor and delivery and all of a sudden, it's like four o'clock in the morning. Pop, pop, All pop, splash, splash, splash. <laughs> what is it? What is it? It is stuff that we can't measure, but we all know it. We used to actually staff an extra nurse or so on a full noon, moon Friday night, um, especially <laughs> if it was something like, um, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And so if we're having our June Rose Festival and the fleet's coming in, uh-huh. I mean, that's a thing that we do. <laughs> the Navy and the Marines, they bring their ships in and they park them and then the whole town goes mm-hmm. wild and there's a carnival. Yeah, we staffed extra for that. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, because it just happened. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, there's a lot we can't measure. So, you know, why not to the best of our abilities, whenever possible, just let Mother Nature do her thing. I like it. Even if we can't explain it. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right about, I mean, those patients, they come in optimized to 
to deliver and to have as low complications as they possibly can. So that that is so true. The, yeah. the other thing, I, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, I, I since I kind of, I work in the global maternal health pool, I um, have opportunities to talk to practitioners and healthcare providers and midwives from other countries. And they're always really curious. Like, so tell me about that thing you do. Which thing is that? You know, where you make the appointment. Tell me about that. They are so intrigued by the hilarious concept that we schedule inductions. Um, they think it's ridiculous. I mean, it's funny when you think about it. Right. And then when we talk further about it and we talk about the cavalcade of complications that can occur from that for both mother and baby, they look at me like, well, then why do you do it? Oh, well, because of insurance reasons and malpractice reasons and exhaustion reasons. And, and, you know, I'm telling this to somebody who's, you know, they're the one midwife. (laughs) (laughs) They're the one. Right. Yeah. They don't want to fill up their schedule because they get to sleep in those rare times when patients aren't spontaneously laboring. (laughs) And they also are in a situation where the idea of being able to, you know, start a pump full of pit is, I mean, they don't even have lights. So, no. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's a a different, completely different way of doing obstetrics in the United States. We, you know, we've got 20 to 50 percent, depending on what area, country you live in, who are going to be induced for one reason or another and there i mean it it should be said and you're not you're not arguing against this i mean there are inductions that need to happen for sure but oh, the culture yes. of induction is largely driven by elective and pseudo medical reasons for induction and you know we i no doctor ever wants to be in a situation where they let their patient go too long um, into pregnancy and end up with a stillbirth. And I think a lot of that, those one time, those rare things happen to us and really yeah, change the way. You. Scar, it, it scars us. There, you know, the, yeah. there's a lot of research now into the traumatic effects of bad patient outcomes on providers. And well, heck yeah. obstetrics, that comes with the job description. And it also comes with a huge price tag for the provider and for the facility, the delivering facility. So there's a lot of pressure to practice a certain way, to practice within the culture of care at your facility. You know, and that is why you'll see you know, different outcomes in different hospitals in the same community and in different states because the culture of care is different. You and I live we both live in progressive birth bubbles. Mm-hmm. You know, Utah has been a leader in reducing inductions and C-sections and improving outcomes for years now. Yeah. Years and yeah. I know, you know, when I was writing for Fit Pregnancy Magazine, I used to um, talk to people in the Utah health system about this amazing concept of reducing inductions, especially for first-time parents. And, you know, Portland is very, very sim- similar. We're about as liberal as it gets the rest of the country, though, it's really patchy, and you know, some places are awesome and some are horrible. Well, so, how do how do we spread the word that practices and birth cultures have to change? Um, I think that in part we just need more voices than uh, in, we need more voices in the conversation than have traditionally been allowed. Yeah. And I think the voice there are voices of patients and patient advocates. There are voices of 
uh, nurses who work on labor and delivery, there are voices of midwives um, that have not had the traditional weight um, that would be really helpful to to address the address the issue. So. Yeah, yeah. You, well, let's talk just a little bit about the challenges that obstetricians face that sort of make or bake a, break a practice. Because I, I feel like an awful lot of the conversation around changing the culture of care is a little polarizing, yeah. where it's, you know, nurses are freaking saints. We all know that. <laughs> Midwives are, you know, they're perfect in every way. And then there's the obstetricians, the troublemakers. And I think that we have to change that. I think people don't get it, that the way that obstetricians have to practice in modern day medicine is, um, it presents some pretty big challenges to being able to practice the way that you thought you would when you went to medical school. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that there's a couple of forces all colliding in obstetrics. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the reality for a younger generation of doctors that the idea of doctor as master architect is and never was true. You cannot right. know everything about every patient, be all-knowing and take all responsibility for all actions that occur to a patient. And then sometimes we help hold ourselves to that standard and sometimes nurses hold us to that standard and oftentimes patients hold us to that standard. But Well, who's really holding you to that standard though? Isn't it the insurance provider, the malpractice <laughs> insurance provider? True. That was one of yeah, the other that... collision, the colliding forces that I was going to mention. Yeah. So we, yeah. we are, we as the obstetricians become the center of frustration and blame when something doesn't go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, not always, but oftentimes. And right. we, that speaking of weights on your shoulder, I mean, the, the docs who I know who have been in situations where a patient is either suing them or just really unsatisfied with an outcome and, and vocal about it, that is as much stress to a doctor as a divorce. Mm-hmm. And I've seen I, it ruin people's it. lives. I, I think that we, uh, going back to one of the first things that you said, is that we doctors are those just regular human people who have the same stresses, yeah. frustrations, and difficulties with our with our work and our lives. And I think that we, when those things, when bad outcomes happen, we're devastated. And yeah. when a bad outcome happens and then we hear that we're on the line financially or legally, that makes it even worse. That meeting with the attorneys in the hospital administrator's office is the worst moment of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's none of us, you know, the best of the best, there's none of us that get to avoid that if you're going to have a career that lasts any strength of t- length of time. Yes. Bad outcomes happen, and it's not our fault. Or it is, but we didn't mean it. It happens because we're all just human beings doing this thing, you know? And we're tired, and we come to work with a migraine and cramps, and our kids are going through potty training, and we haven't slept for weeks. That's who we are. Yeah. Potty training is the worst. 
It's the worst. It is the worst. <laughs> Do you have a little one? A oh, tiny my one? son is. He's got his potty chart at daycare, and we've tried <laughs> the like taking things away, offering things as a you know. We've tried the carrot and the metaphorical stick, not true stick, of course, uh-huh. but uh, of course. <laughs> Yeah. I'm terrible at it. Yeah. My husband had a great technique that I give him 100% credit for potty training our kids. And, um, you know, back then we didn't have, well, my kids range from 17 to 29. And so when the 29-year-old was going through it, we didn't have pull-ups. We had training pants. So you'd go to Kmart or Target or whatever, and you'd get these six pack of ultra thick absorbent cotton underwear so he would go and he would get plain ones like mm-hmm. a dozen of the really plain white ones that had no frills or anything and then he'd get one pair that for the girls were they we used to call them rumba panties if they were really cute <laughs> and they had lace on the butt and for the boys it would have or for our son i think he was into ninja turtles and so that was your reward underwear. And if you could keep your white ones dry for several days, then you got to wear the rumba panties or the turtles. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that was actually the thing or if they were just plain ready. Yeah, can you even but, find just regular whitey tighties for a little boy? I feel like every single one of them has got, like, Cars, Ninja Turtles, or Lego movie on them. I don't know. I don't I'll know. I haven't been in that department yeah. a little bit. <laughs> My 17-year-old's been potty trained for quite some okay. time now. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a, is he two? He's three. Just turned three. Three. Yeah. 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 And is he, like, he does really great with pee, but it's poo? Yep. Exactly. Yep. That's so classic. So classic. Yeah. You're right on track with all the other parents plus three is tough at least for me i thought three was tough i know people have a hard time with two and four but um for me it was three. Oh, no 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 it was four three-year-olds are fun yeah. four-year-olds are the hard ones you know i keep telling myself that at this current point of having a three-year-old and one-year-old this is the hardest that parenting could possibly or will ever be and yeah, every- you'd keep telling yourself that <laughs> everybody who has older kids is like you are joking yourself yeah, you are. But that's okay. I think denial is a lovely place to live. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? You and I have been on the phone for quite some time now, and I think you probably have to go off and do your job. But I have two final questions for you. How would you fill in the blanks? Nobody ever told me that. Okay. How would I fill in that blank? Yeah. Um... Nobody ever told me that you can be a doctor and cry. Hmm. That is a good answer. Then my last question for you is, where are you in your life as a parent? I, oh, where am I in my life as a parent? Um, I am at the wonderful stage where I get to build rocket ships with my son and forts and think about how his brain views the world with such Mm -hmm. beauty. 
Yeah, yeah. That is a good spot to be. And I'm at a place where my daughter looks at me mostly with adoration or just need. Mm-hmm. And I get to put her little blonde hair into pigtails and kiss her. Yeah. <laughs> You're in the sweet spot, buddy. You're in the sweet spot. Nothing's better than that. Yeah. And, you know, it is challenging ahead, but that sweet spot that you're in right now, each stage has its own sweet spot that's just exactly like that. Awesome. Even when they're stinky, nasty (laughs) teenagers and breaking your heart, there's an equal and opposite sweet spot. Good. Yeah. I can do this then. (laughs) Yes, you can. (laughs) Well, this has been a really fun conversation, and I hope that you and I will get to have a few more conversations down the road because this is fun. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, great. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go on about your day then. Thanks, Jeannie. Take care. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Our guest today was Dr. Brett Einerson who works at University of Utah Health Systems. You can learn more about him by Googling the guy and by uh, going on over to University of Utah Health Systems. Find out more. You can learn more about me at genefaulkner.com. You can email me, gene at genefaulkner. Tweet me at genefaulkner. Um, please subscribe to the, the podcast so that you get every episode Help us spread our audience. We're really, really growing. And I want more and more people to be in on the conversation. And I need your help to do that. So please share this on your social media profiles. Talk about it with your friends. Tell your cousin who's having a baby. Oh, hey, I know this cool pod. You should listen. And of course, need you to buy copies of the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, available everywhere books are sold. Um... Our podcast is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Picture Studios in Portland, Oregon. Thank you all for listening, and we're going to talk again next week. Bye-bye.